Welcome to Wacker Slaps Presents Twin Cinema, where we look back into the archives of 2000s indie music films to determine if a movie or a band or even an entire musical movement was actually good or just a product of the hype machine of its time. Like all great podcasts, this is a direct spinoff of another podcast that is a direct spinoff of an unhinged group text that simply refuses to die. Per usual, I am joined by the man who broke my motherfucking sitar. I'm Adrian. I'm your producer, and I sneeze, and three hit podcasts come out. <laughs> uh, yes, and uh, I am Noah. And if you dig on vegan food, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna be friends. <laughs> Oh boy. Right. Oh boy. Well, <clears throat> welcome in that lengthy intro. Hopefully I didn't butcher it too bad. Episode 32, Adrian. Got me thinking. 32. Of 32, yeah. 32 short stories of Glenn Gould, of course. Classic. That's I'm trying to get a Glenn Gould spin-off podcast. That'll be our <laughs> third one, Adrian. We just go through all every Goldberg variation. <laughs> Every variation, all F minor, F major, um, <laughs> all called 86 remember, pieces or whatever. Yeah, remember Glenn. Uh, I was trying to think about this like 32. I mean, obviously, like 32 is big in sports in terms of like numbers, it's a big 32s, but albums, yeah, I don't know. Magic. 32, yeah, exactly. Uh, but 32 in terms of albums, like that's rough, man. It's very like. I was trying to think like even the Rolling Stones top out tap out about like I think like 28 studio albums or something really? like that. That makes yeah, sense. It's rare to There's plenty of bands that have albums like more than 30 albums but it's kind of those like weirdo kind of culty bands, you know, usually that just kind of seem to always be pumping stuff out <laughs> like these fucking bands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was also thinking 32 short stories of uh, Springfield. Classic. Simpsons, great episode. Simpsons yeah. app. One of is the few. Favorite? Is that the best? Uh, I'm still partial to uh, Last Exit to Springfield. I think that's probably the most solid through and through. But uh, 32 stories, that's up there. Uh, that's like a nostalgic classic for me. I always love that one. But, what are you uh, saying? One of the few. It's one of the few with a title on screen in the episode. It's like the telltale head, that one. And like maybe a few, I mean, I obviously that's coming from the first 10 years. I haven't really, I tapped out about season 15 and then I've never really looked back. I know that's crazy. Cause like, if you would have told me when I was, I don't know, eight years old or whatever, when like the Simpsons was like the greatest thing in my life. Yeah. You would have told me, if you would have told me, guess what kid? this show will play every year of your life for the, like, as long as you live, I would have been like, well, shit, it's all gravy from here. Yeah. And here I am. I haven't watched in freaking 20 years. Now your pops famously 
watched every episode of the Simpsons. Is he still on that or is he moved on? I, I think he might've tapped. I think maybe he catches them on Hulu. He <laughs> oh, nice. A couple. Yeah. Um, the 32 short stories days. of, yeah. 32 short stories of Springfield is kind of mm-hmm. funny because it's, it's a Glenn gold reference and also a Pulp Fiction riff too. Well, there is a pulp fiction. There's a there's a few different riffs in there. Well, you got you got Lisa's gum in her hair story. You got the haircut. Yeah, yeah Barton Lisa or uh, Barton Millhouse fucking around is the bookends. Uh, you got the bit. With, my one of my favorite bits is with the very tall man, with oh, yeah. Nelson. Wave at the people. <laughs> it's like this is the only car that I could afford that fits me. Um. Classic stuff. 32. 32. Uh, that's the part of the show we riff on the member <laughs> of the episode, I guess. I was going to say, um, are we in in season 32 of The Simpsons? And we're actually in season 33 now. So just uh, just oh over. God, that's insane. Yeah, fucking wild. I was thinking, too, because it's like, remember when like Time Magazine gave The Simpsons it was like best show of the century? Yeah. And it was like, <laughs> it's like there's 20 more seasons of it. <laughs> like, it's crazy. And then like, uh, I remember that episode, 32 short story, that would always pop on like the, everybody did a top 10 of Simpsons. Oh, yeah. That was usually up there. It was usually like one or two. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, I mean, it's, it is a classic. We got a lot of, you got a lot of jokes packed into one 22 minute episode comparatively. Of, uh, larger the Simpsons universe, you see a lot of side characters. I mean, you got everyone from Professor Frank to Capital City Goofballs in there, Bumblebee Man, the Sea Captain pops up, you know, you got Dr. Colossus, who is a very specific to this episode. Surplus guy. Oh, yeah, uh, Herman. Herman, yeah. Uh, uh, Milhouse's dad, Uh, what's his name? (laughs) One of my favorite characters. (laughs) His fucking dad. Big wheel down at the Cracker Factory. What is his first name, Van Houten? Uh, Kirk. Kirk Van Houten. Kirk. Uh, can I borrow a feeling? Oh, God. <laughs> All right. Well, we did it. <laughs> we take next around. week <laughs> as we talk about the number 33. Oh, um, well. Well, there's like, there's a few 33. I mean, um, there's that Blonde Redhead album, right? 30, is that 33 and something or the other, or something like that? There's Naked Gun, 33 and a third. Oh, starring my favorite, uh, Sports, sports, sportsman turned actor, uh, Orenthal Simpson. Orenthal, his take on the slap was uh, very good. <laughs> yeah, actually, <laughs> I saw that he weighed in. I didn't, um, I didn't catch it. Uh, I do, uh, I do, I do follow him on Twitter, I believe, though. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, well, anyways, the show is Whacker Slaps. We won't be talking about slapping. <laughs> God, we might have to change the name. Uh, <laughs> Post okay. Will Smith <laughs> today. On the podcast, the spinoff of the Mother Feed, Twin Cinema, we have uh, indie rock doc for y'all, and it is called Dig! Exclamation point from the year two thousand and four, directed by Andy Timoner. Nice, Adrian. What did uh, Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic, give us a little rundown? Yeah, so. Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic. Uh, I mean, it, like, once again, it's kind of the same spread here. We got an 89% from Rotten Tomatoes. You know, pretty pretty good. 
Metacritic is 76, which again is pretty good. But I just over the past couple, I think we've been seeing this kind of like 10 to kind of 10 percentage point split. So I think these, these are pretty accurate numbers here. But I pulled yeah. I pulled a <clears throat> I pulled a review by a guy named Ty Burr. I'm forgetting where it was from. I believe it was from the Boston Globe, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but his score was a perfect four out of four. Nice. Um, He's like, it's a four out of four, kid. <laughs> uh, um, but I pulled, it's actually a pretty lengthy lengthy excerpt here because uh, I thought he, he kind of summed up things pretty nicely. But here we go. Pop culture name checking and grandiose aims were all the dandies and the BJM had in common, but their divergent trajectories turned out to say plenty about selling out versus staying cool and about whether madness is good for art or bad for everything. Above all, Dig is a comedy about the American recording industry and a tragedy about Anton Newcomb, the talented train wreck who fronts the Brian Jonestown massacre. I don't know that I've seen a film that better captures the tension between authenticity and ambition that bedevils modern rock music the sense that a mass audience is something to be desired and detested at one in the same time. For Taylor and the Dandies, this is another of life's little ironies. For Newcomb, it's something more frightening, and his inability to deal with it leaves the musician increasingly isolated. By the closing scenes of Dig, he's on stage alone, and still the demons press in. The feeling that you're watching a gifted man destroy himself is such that you have to look away. There's also the suggestion that well-adjusted rock stars make hits, well, maladjusted rock stars make art as well as the debunking of that notion through clear-eyed documentary observation. And there's the harrowing sight of Anton Newcomb running from something with such urgency that he never stops to think what he's running toward. Yeah, I mean, I think that that kind of covers a lot of the themes, the threads running through this documentary. I mean, there's a lot to be covered here. It's a very interesting, very interesting personalities at work here. Um, And just uh, laid the gist, it's essentially a film that followed these bands for like six years. And it's two bands that they're exploring Brian Jonestown massacre, which is sort of the edgier, more fucked up band and more then artsy, the more druggy, artsy, druggy. And then the dandy Warhols who a little more polish, but yet it's both of their, they're both kind of meeting in the middle. You know, it's about kind of not breaking through but uh, showing, you know, what it kind of takes and how most bands kind of fail and struggle. And uh, it's about the ups and downs of these two bands and their feud, whether it was real or not. <laughs> One size or not. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, um, you want to give us some more history, Adrian? Or? Yeah. Um, I, that's that's a pretty good background about the, the bands and what's going on. I mean, because their, their histories are intertwined. Um, you kind of see the the friendship and the kind of the frenemy aspect of it evolve into something even more frightening than that. But the film itself compiles over 2,500 hours of footage recorded from 1995 through 2002 by uh, the aforementioned director, Andy Timoner, and others. And as we said, it chronicles kind of the highs and lows of the careers and the you know the love hate relationship between these two bands. The Brian Johnson Massacre, led by Anton Newcomb, Anton Newcomb, and the Dandy Warhols, who are led by Courtney Taylor Taylor, who also narrates the film. It was co-produced and edited by Timoner and her brother David Timoner through her own Interloper Films, along with film 
the French film production and distribution company Celluloid Dreams, who I believe uh, does a lot of different musical things and uh, music films. Uh, it was distributed by Palm Pictures, who is another uh, big distributor of music films. They are perhaps well, most well-known. Well, to me, they're most well-known for the work of series of um, DVDs that compile a bunch of <clears throat> music director, music directors kind of filmography, um, which I think for, I don't know, uh, for us, I think that was kind of before the YouTube and stuff that was like, you throw that on when you're like, you know, smoking bong loads and, you know, you yeah. can catch, you know, all of Spike Jones's work or all of Chris Cunningham's weirdo shit or whatever. Um, and it was pretty great. Yeah. But the yeah. Old video music video, Hollywood pipeline. Yeah, exactly. Which, uh, Back when that was a thing. Yeah. Maybe one of the last waves of like uh, influential group of directors, you know, those mm. sort of nineties indie guys, but specifically the ones that came out of music videos, mm -hmm. you know, there's still people doing the Fincher thing and the, you know, even like Michael Bay came out of music videos, you know, or someone even like uh, Anton Corbin or others who have dabbled in film, but, yeah. uh, but also, but just have influence in terms of like the, the that them, their music videos and their photography and whatever. Um, so yeah, Palm Pictures, great, great uh, film company. The, the movie was released on January 18th, 2004, and it won the grand jury prize for documentary film at uh, the Sundance Film Festival, which, you Damn. know, that's pretty big. It Robert features- Redford was like, I dig this. <laughs> oh, you think he saw it, Robert Redford? A problem, I mean, I don't know, dude. Hmm, that's a good question. Do, does does he? You think back then he was just like watching them all? Still, on a, probably not. Who yeah, has the time? Well, no, I think two thousand four. Yeah, I was that was kind of like the height of Sundance in a way. Kind of. Well, yeah, that's kind of well, true. You could definitely I mean, make. I, guess. I would say the early nineties is probably the the tippy top, but um, but yeah, around this point too, there was a lot of uh, indie buzz, as it were. Yeah, they had their the, their channel. Sundance channel yeah it was like oh yeah buzz and that's what kind of this movie is it's like <laughs> analog buzz you know it's like <laughs> tangible but pre-internet buzz is what really kind of intrigues me about this movie that's true like this is magazine buzz this yeah. is <laughs> back buzz when you built a video cult. buzz <laughs> right yes exactly you built a cult off of a few like uh, one cool video a you couple articles be, and spin yeah, and you know yeah. EW would even have these guys <laughs> in there. Shout out Entertainment Weekly. RIP. Rest in peace. Yeah. Great periodical. Yeah. But uh, anyways, continue, Adrian. <clears throat> yeah. So the film, <clears throat> excuse me, the film features appearances from a few. Well, there's a lot of talking heads from a bunch of people involved, but with the band, you know, managers, friends, you know, club, club owners and things like that. It features appearances from photographer David LaChapelle, Genesis P. Orridge, Porridge from Psychic TV, Robin Gristle. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Harry Dean Stanton, which is awesome. <laughs> and uh, uh, I still subscribe to the that. I think it's attributed to Ebert, the Harry Dean Stanton. Any, any movie with Harry Dean Stanton or um, M. at Walsh yeah. is good. And then Miranda Lee Richards. It's, it's, he doesn't say it's necessarily good, but he says it can't wholly be bad. Like, yes. it can't be bad. Exactly. 
which is accurate. And Miranda Lee Richards, who was a um, kind of a burgeoning uh, star around this time, I would say, or at least in, in, she had a, a similar buzz around her uh, while these around the time these bands were, were popping off. Various members of both bands have criticized the film. Taylor Taylor and Anton Yukon in particular have said it's unfair in his portrayal of Anton Yukon and the Brian Jones Ham Massacre. Um, on the, their website, Yukon writes, I was shocked and let down when I saw the end result. Several years of our hard work was reduced at best to a series of punch-ups and mishaps taken out of context. And at worst, bold-faced lies and misre- misrepresentation of fact. Damn. So straight up calling calling them out. That was that was Anton. That was Anton, yeah. Mm. Um, but Taylor Taylor also chimed in. He said uh in an interview, it's a movie, not a documentary. She worked her ass off and forged a plot when there was no plot. She crafted the thing to swell and ebb by taking eight years of us and a year and a half of the Brian Jones Towns Massacre. So, I mean, I think you can make that argument. Obviously, every documentary, yeah. just by its nature, every film by its nature, has to have a narrative. I mean, that's yeah. not true necessarily, but most films have a narrative and build in, in a very similar way. And documentaries are a point are of view. A point of view, yeah. yes. There you go. Exactly. Um, and this this one definitely does have a point of view. Yeah. Um, and you it's could argue. Werner uh, Herzog would call the ecstatic truth. <laughs> yes. And you could argue it's harsh, harsher towards the BJM and, and, and Anton Newcomb, but it's interesting nonetheless, you know. Well, it's weird that the Taylor Taylor guy is taking offense because mm-hmm. he, he goes back and narrates the thing, right? Uh, yeah well maybe he and that's i mean you're narrating maybe she, she chopped up the narration as that's well. yeah i would imagine that's probably the case i think he was probably yeah. they were all probably just saying bits and pieces of but it he's probably also like fuck a gig is a gig <laughs> <laughs> at that point like shit <laughs> yeah me- and you know anton you know I, yeah his perception of things or oh well of course his own yeah he's (laughs) he's he's a unique individual himself and uh he he doesn't take too kindly to many things so as we see in the movie that's what i wanted to see like what these guys deal were like musically and both before let me just before we get into that let me just finish off with one little fact here that i and then we can get right into uh, what their deal was but the movie is part of the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern oh, Art, yeah. which is a huge kind of deal, you know, in, in New York City, of course. And it was screened at the finale of the Film Society at Lincoln Center and MoMA's 33rd annual New Directors New Films Festival in 2004. So it did, you know, it did got a lot of critical acclaim. It got a lot of buzz and, it, and you yeah. know, it has artistic merit, obviously, as we can see from, you know, being, I mean, uh, being included in the MoMA, that's that's pretty big. Yeah, I wonder, Adrian, I, I was thinking about this after watching the movie and just thinking about it. And uh, I wonder, do you think the documentary is almost better served by the fact that both of these bands, although achieved enough success to be working bands, but we never saw them. It's not a rise to fame documentary. You know, it's more mm. of just like a kind of like almost more about like failure or like how most bands never achieve like stratospheric success it is usually like if you're lucky to just continue to be in a band that tours and can make an album but never really exploded or right 
crossed over, you know, broke through. Right. It doesn't really have that, that arc, which is kind of how the devil and Daniel Johnson was in, in terms of like watching his whole kind of career and, and the kind of the way that that went. Cause yeah, we, he has a legacy now, but these guys didn't have a legacy then, nor yeah. really do they have one now outside mm-hmm. of this documentary, you know? Right. I mean, if, without this documentary, I don't think we would be talking about either of these bands in 2022 at all. Like yeah. I really don't, maybe people would mention them as like, Oh yeah. Yeah. The, those guys like the Danny Warhols. Yeah. They had that hit in the nineties or whatever, or that that's the video in the nineties when then the Brian Jones, like they would be cult bands even more than they are. But, but yeah, that's interesting because I think, you know, it's kind of interesting because I think maybe the filmmaker Andy Timoner, Timoner, yeah, she was filming these people for like six years, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of a documentary and you would think like, Oh man, wouldn't it be great? I follow them and they do blow up. You know, that almost makes for a, a better film. Do you like, think thematically do you think she, was, she was shooting for that? Or do you think she no, was just flying well, the wall she, like think, let's see what happens? I think she would have been happy if that happened, mm-hmm. but I think she was got a better, more story. lasting story. And I think she knew it where it's like, oh no, this is more interesting. Like mm. to see these guys kind of collapse frustrated and and self-sabotage and be shows like the sort of arrogance that you have to have to be a rock star but if you're not a rock star it comes off as very like like you're just very insecure you know like right it the 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 theatrics and your behavior are not justified by any type of success or fame you know so like it's kind of a yeah, I think it's an interesting. It ends up being more interesting the fact that it is just these bands that were a kind of a footnote. Right, exactly. So yeah, so then we can kind of what 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 was their deal then? Like what were these guys? Yeah, musically, what do you say, Adrian? Do you want to start maybe give us about the um uh Brian Jonestown? Because they're kind of more folky, psychedelic, with a little bit of kind of early stones thrown in there. I would say, what would you say? Maybe some of their influences were. I would say the Stones for sure. I mean, obviously, just judging by the name, the Stones yeah, must have had true. an influence. But you know, it was all the psychedelic stuff. I would say stuff like Rocky Erickson and Sid Barrett for sure, but also Velvet Underground and some of the more druggy like glam stuff from the from the 70s and stuff and some of that sleazy kind of new york rock but not really necessarily in sound in sound they were much more like folk like in the kind of velvet underground folky kind of noisy folk weird Mm -hmm. if you watch this documentary you see them all fighting on stage and they have more (laughs) of a raucous aura about them like even they're like you know they record they just rent a house and it turns into a big party and Anton's like the mad genius, like recording 15 in- instruments. And- yeah. And all these people are in and out of the band and, and it seemed more chaotic, but when you listen to the records, it's much more like, I was surprised how it was much more focused and it, and it is, it leans way more towards like folky psychedelia than it does any type of rock, like, like, I don't know, rock and roll or, 
Yeah. They're hitting similar vibes to like the flaming lips around this time, but the flaming lips got way more out there with it. Like yeah. they, those, the flaming lips took the psychedelic aspect and turned it from like five to like 20, you know, whereas these guys were like, no, we're going to keep it around five and we're going to balance it out with some of the more kind of esoteric folky kind of stuff. Yeah. And then throw in some of the psychic with the psychedelic, it was more like textures and things like that, like sitars or whatever, you know? Yeah. It did remind me of some bands that came later, like in the mid 2000s, like mm. uh, Black Lips and like uh, like The Woods, stuff like that. Sure, yeah. Well, and then also there was the offshoots of, of the band. I mean, like like Black Rebel Motorcycle Club and stuff like that. Who Shout very Zach Wild. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> I think that's Black Label Society. Oh, right. didn't they play at like Trump's inauguration? Or something? Oh, fuck, probably. Although, know. who knows? I, I could, know I could, totally, I could picture that guy being like, "No, actually, I'm like a lucky Crazy vegan or whatever." Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> edit that out. <laughs> no, that's in. That stays in. So yeah, they, yeah, they have much more of. It's kind of you know, it's a little dark. It's a little more mysterious. It's a little bit more. And yeah, a little bit more druggy. It's less, it's less acid and more heroin, I would say, in terms yeah, of the sound. You know, you're right? Perhaps you're right. A whole lot of grass. <laughs> whole lot of grass. Yeah. These are the the guys in like, because it's primarily like in the '90s, mid to it's like '96 to like 2002. The window we're looking. Yeah, at. I think we pick it up around New Year's '96, right? And then yeah. uh, kind of goes. It's from kind there. of the last wave of people that would still kind of earnestly have a little bit of hippie in them like <laughs> smoking grass man like fucking wearing barrel bell bottoms babe <laughs> you're a cool chick babe i knew some kids that were like this just like this like four or five years later and it was insufferable <laughs> luckily they they grew out of it but i was just like oh boy you guys are embarrassing with your fucking yeah. you know your bell bottom jeans and your fucking whatever the fuck it was in 20. 10 or whatever the yeah, fuck it's like you see uh you see uh like the last movie once and all of a sudden <laughs> you're dennis hopper <laughs> oh boy uh, well uh how about the dandy warhols you want to take a shot at kind of what they're they're about yeah so the dandies are kind of the flip side of the coin as far as what was going on in the 90s uh, the dandies are going for a much more pop sound. And I'd say they have a touch of that Brit pop that was going around. Yeah. I mean, they talked about bringing it up, right? And yeah, Stone Roses. Oh, that's a good touchstone. Yeah. I think both bands were like, damn, I would, I just wish we could write a song that is Oasis ish and would hit us <laughs> on the radio. Or like, I, I, I think even the Danny Warhols would settle for like, fuck, can't we just write a, third eye blind type of <laughs> stupid summer jam song that will stand the test of time. But yeah, they're kind of going for a little bit of the retro rock thing in the nineties that was happening. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we, a lot of times think of the whole retro rock thing, which is like a dumb title that it's just meaningless, really but... meaningless, but you think of it as those New York bands, like in the 2000 or the, the white stripes, stuff Strokes, like that, stuff like that. Yeah. A few years later, like two, maybe probably, yeah. Like two years later after the, what these guys were doing. Yeah. But that was happening a lot in the nineties as well with like 
Olivia Tremor control or even like Wilco and stuff doing like a 60s sort of pastiche, like a birds type rock and roll. The Jayhawks. Yeah. Yeah. That LA kind of Laurel Canyon sound was prominent, but also digging into, yeah, we mentioned them earlier, uh, like 13 floor elevators. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And the Warhols lean on a poppier side of that i mean their name kind of tips their hand yeah you know if brian jonestown massacre is a portmanteau about you know brian jones from the rolling stones and a cult leader their music sounds more like that and uh dandy warhols who are doing a pun on andy warhol sounds more like a sort of pop trying to make a little perfect little kind of dumb pop song but i don't think they're iconic no, I think they just never certainly they have good songs and you know catchy songs, but they never had that one that one thing that hit. Um, yeah, they had the buzz bin video, they yeah, exactly. But for they what never, was that one, the Bohemian Like Me, right? That's their hit. It was on like a cell phone commercial. It was that one, they had two, right? I think there was that one, and uh, what was the other one, Minnesota yeah something but that that one was the big one for sure their songs are so hard to remember like it's so (laughs) weird like they're not catchy i found myself doing this whenever like oh have you ever seen that movie dig like just talking about whatever rock docs yeah i was like yeah dandy warhols and people were like yeah what was their song again and it's like i can remember the title like i think it's called like bohemian something (laughs) but i can never like like how does it go like it like they're not they're bohemian like you yeah bohemian. yeah their riffs are not catchy enough i don't think no and and somehow they all for both these bands like i hate to say it because it's a lazy kind of um criticism but oh, you're in a safe place with lazy criticism <laughs> but they all kind of sound the same like ultimately they all yeah. kind of sound the same Which like the Danny Warhols, a bad thing but... no no obviously plenty of bands have made a good living and have made good records doing just that you know delivering solid versions of what they do but i don't know these ones are just become generic in, in next to each other you know yeah. there's a couple that stand out um Ooh. definitely for both bands but otherwise yeah they they, they kind have of you noticed too adrian both of these bands their albums will be like 14 to 15 songs in like yeah. an hour yeah. and 20 minutes and it's like right. come on guys like you guys aren't I feel like they just want to skip ahead to where like we're indulgent rock stars. Now. <laughs> you, it's like dude, you, you skip like, the step, bro. Skip the step. Try writing a memorable song. Like, <laughs> I mean, I commend you. You're fucking grinding out on the road. That ain't easy. But it's like, man, and then yeah. maybe some of it's a show for the cameras, you know? But, yeah. Well, but I think also another part of it, in turn, well, for less so for the Dandy Warhols, but the brand Jones and Masker was simply just putting out so many records. Like yeah. I think if they, had, instead of putting out, you know, four records within a year and a half or whatever it was, if they had just put out two records and spent more time, but you know, working on those songs and polishing them, editing, yeah. editing those, that could be, those probably would be all time classics, but because of the way that Anton Newcomb is, is like, he's constantly, he's like a shark, you know, it's the, it's the thing you can't, 
stop moving. He has to always <laughs> move forward. Like that's kind of his whole deal. Like his deal is like, I, yeah. I'm just shedding off these fucking songs and, and putting all this shit together. And then I'm moving on to the next thing. And, you know, um, but, yeah. but he's, you know, all of his genius, you know, we'll in get into eyes. it, but that's one of the tragedies of the film. Yeah. Because when he finally does get signed to a label, the label recognizes what this guy is. They're like, he's a guy that'll just fucking make album after album after album. Like we can just build him his own little studio. He'll yeah. do everything. He won't cost us a lot of money. And he fucking, he blows that. Like, <laughs> yeah, they literally built him a fucking studio <laughs> and he's like fucked off and, and just is like, nah, whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, that, that's, you know, that's kind of one of the ongoing things in this movie, right? Is like the idea, like you mentioned earlier, this idea of self-sabotage of, you know, of seriousness of yes, of self-indulgence becoming, you know, kind of overtaking the, the, the artistry, you know, it's, it's all here. I mean, it's, it's all this classic rock stuff. Um, you know, I, this, this documentary I think is really great because it has so many themes like in the way there's a juxtaposition between the two bands, mm -hmm. you know, it's all about like duality. Like it's about yeah. like authenticity versus commercial like commercialism versus you know you know it's like ha having a hit versus being respected i also find the bands themselves i thought that brian jonestown that whole band there's a bunch of them so it's a lot of personalities to a lot of young people at the time you know so it's going to be pretty volatile but they're yeah. like they're like everything's careless man and beautiful or they're fucking angry and like at each other's throats you know it goes from like whoa we're all like peace and love to like you know let's get fucked to then just being like you you vote you broke the law man like, like that's illegal first of <laughs> right. all like, they get all like it goes intense. from like like yeah. hippy dippy let's all smoke weed and drink beers and play and music I, to like the, the dark junkie like i don't fucking trust you i don't trust anyone <laughs> yeah. i don't trust myself and i'm gonna get fucking you know yeah. annihilated i mean and i guess too, <laughs> we see it throughout the movie i, I yeah. some of it's like i think cocaine induced oh yeah i mean we see you see them you know the and blatant use of cocaine in this movie <laughs> i think it speaks to the era of when this movie was made too because it was like Coke's these back. bands well, yeah, but these it was like these bands didn't like have complete control of like their brand the way mm. that people know how to do it now. Well, now that's yeah. the whole that well, they have ownership. The like now yeah. musicians that have biopics made out about them, they're in the editing booth, you know. Right. Their documentaries they're, yes. are produced by the artists themselves. You right. Know? So Kanye there's, is producing gene to it. Genius or whatever, yeah. But I think that also speaks to they they never maybe if they would have ended by the time this movie stopped filming and, and if they were famous, they would have been like, yeah, this this documentary does not see the light of day. <laughs> they would have like cocksuckered bluesed it. <laughs> all, all the Rolling Stones. Nice. Nice reference. Oh, and then um, I wanted to say about the dandies, about their duality too, kind of same yeah. kind of thing. They're super trying to be nonchalant rock stars go with the flow 
but yet they're like extremely dramatic where it's like <laughs> they're like theater kids trying to hang out with the drug kids <laughs> That's, wow that is that really does sum up the personalities that work here because yeah, they're all kind of more nerds. They're all kind of like wish they're they could stable. be. Yeah. yeah, they're stable. I mean, I have a lot of notes about that kind of duality thing, as well as like just stuff like major versus indie. You know, we see them dealing yeah. with that kind of question. But there's also like the idea, yeah, well-adjusted versus, you know, completely chaotic. Being more restrained in your kind of the way that you work and the way that you do things versus kind of the free expression of someone like Anton Newcomb. You know, and I think there was some jealousy there for from the dandies who were like, we can't really do what they do. We can't really be artists in the way that they're artists. Yeah. Like we we can write songs and we can, you know, hone them and make polish them, but they're not gonna be these artistic statements in the, the way raw, that rawness or yeah, like the they these this just this he's pure from the thing. <laughs> that was the, that whole he's thing. The Billy, he's the Billy Zane <laughs> of alternative rock. He's too pretty to be a star. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true. No, yeah, I thought was... he kind of looked like Billy. So, Zane. so which which album is the uh, is the Phantom? <laughs> <laughs> it's the one where they do a, a mashup of Sticky Fingers meets oh. <laughs> Velvet Underground and Nico, the Zipper yeah. Banana. That's oh, pretty boy. good. I mean, I guess if you're the Dandies, you gotta. At the Dandy Warhols, at one point you got to reference the two famous Andy Warhol covers. <laughs> I mean, kind of, right? Like but the balls that it speaks to the ball, the gall of these fuckers. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> right? They just like, yeah, we're gonna, <laughs> of course. I was gonna say the vibe of the Dandy Warhols reminds me a lot of a, a Canadian man, even though they are not Canadian. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, they have yeah. that kind of you can't put weirdly wholesome, it. but not wholesome yeah kind of off but kind of because they're not they are not canadian they are definitely From, uh, Portland, uh Oregon, yeah right um i think that's right yeah and the burning jonestown massacre from um, san francisco yeah. well portland is like canadian california <laughs> oh boy yeah. oh boy we're gonna get some angry angry tweets <laughs> some angry tweets from some uh, portlanders um but i but sticking on the dandies and this they're their singer Taylor, Courtney Taylor, Taylor. When did he add the extra Taylor? I, that's a good question. Is that is that like a uh, like a Kramer versus Kramer kind of thing? I don't know what that is, but I do think in this movie we see when once they get signed to a label, they get a bunch of money to get to to make a music video. Yeah, and it's it's so funny too. It speaks to that kind of the duality of these two bands where you see the brian jonestown they get an opportunity to do an industry showcase at like the the whiskey or whatever in hollywood and they just fight on troubadour and they just fight on stage and blow it yeah then you see the warhols who have money like five hundred thousand dollars to make a music video that is directed by david la chapelle who 90s kids fucking get it dude. that dude was huge in the 90s dude his style look, is coming back now like that he looks so 90s style. the massimo, massimo tracksuit i think it's sick dude yeah I get it's one pretty good but that guy i think la chapelle comes off very well on this he does he seems he seems reasonable because here they here these fuckers are 
you see them having an opportunity to make this video and try to cross over with their song. That's bad. <laughs> Heroin is so blase or what's it called? Not if you're the last junkie on earth. Yeah. yeah. But here they have, they have all the amenities and they're still unhappy and self-sabotaging. And they're like, this video can never see the light of day. Right. And, and all because it was like, what, too many close-ups of the pretty boy, but of course, yeah, and then, like, and then like, La Chapelle, you yeah. see that, where he gets fired or whatever, where they're like, your video is not going to come out. I think it eventually did. Cause I remember. It did, seeing yeah. That. Yeah. But La Chapelle's like, dude, I told this guy, I'm not trying to sabotage you or make fun of you. I'm trying to show you, like, I'm just filming you how you look. Yeah. When you, when you rock out on the guitar and sing and are like trying to woo all the, the ladies in the crowd, that's how you look. You look like a pretty boy trying to be kind of a tough rock star like i can't give you edge like i'm sorry and like you you see courtney taylor taylor just being like like why do i why am i not cool already like just yeah. make me look cool it's like the uh almost famous thing like just make us look cool man <laughs> but they like can't stand to see like how they actually are like, right which would be which would make them cool like if they just yeah. were like owned up to like this is what you are. This is who you guys are. It would have worked because, but, but because of these insecurities, because of whatever else is driving these guys to be what they are, like it all comes out and they, they, you know, they, they, they can the fucking the video director because yeah, yeah. too many shots of me. It's like, what do you expect, dude? You're the lead singer. Like this is rock and roll. Of course <laughs> we're going to show you you're a good looking guy. Like, yeah. 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 What do you want, dude? Like, do you want to be a star? Like, you look at the third eye blind video, you're not getting too many shots. Of yeah, we're not seeing the bass player. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're seeing uh, Stephen Jenkins front center. Jenkins. I don't even know the other guy's names. That's how much rapping that, is that. That's off. what tells you right there. Like, come on. I waited <laughs> on Stephen Jenkins once at a restaurant. Oh, and San he's a, yeah, he's SF, uh, SF guy. He's yeah. a fucking prick. Oh, oof. straight up. Not surprising i will say yeah. yeah just kind of a douche he looked great though i will say he's like a, For a silver, former meth head silver fox oh nice he was all ripped he was like coming from the gym he like oh uh, one of those guys gym yeah. clothes nice good for him all right well all right. before we get into our history should we uh hear from our leader yes our exile leader we haven't even mentioned our host caleb he's out on paternity leave and uh he weighed in dropped us a voicemail um i have vetted it vetted it and uh <laughs> eddie vetted it it's not too unhinged he's pretty <laughs> angry though he's, he's getting all anton on it. <laughs> he's very passionate yes <laughs> <laughs> no we miss you caleb come uh, back soon yeah, the kid, love the kid, my little nephew. Yeah, I got to meet him. He's a good kid, good lad. Hopefully, we'll have him on the pod sometime. Oh, yeah. Um, probably but here... write a better song than <laughs> Dandy Warhol. Oh, no doubt. Um, so, yeah, here is <clears throat> a little bit about this film from Caleb. Hey, what's up? This is your uh, exiled host out here in Exile on Dad, Bill. 
Um, Caleb, how's it going? I'm calling it about the, um, the dig episode of the, the film, music film series that my, uh, comrades, brothers are doing here. Um, I was really hoping to watch this one, uh, dig, cause I you now just heard, um, really good things about it for years, <laughs> but I didn't get around to watching it, uh, such as my life these days, but you know, whatever. Yeah, I gotta say, I fucking hate both these bands. I was just revisiting the Daddy Warhols, because, you know, they had their little moment um, in the 90s, early 2000s. They fucking suck. It's cringy shit. Um, it's just finger-waggy, fucking snarky, unnecessarily. Yeah, that sucks. Brian Jones Town Massacre was a tiny bit better, but they're just fucking... Um, Pretty lame, pretty passe, just pretty fucking, like, cosplay, tambourine-waving, like, fucking scarf-wearing bullshit. Um, yeah, I don't I can't separate the, like I said, the fucking cosplay and the pageantry from them being serious musicians with something interesting to say or breaking any sort of sonic ground. Um, and I'm hoping to watch the documentary one of these days. And But from my understanding, is it's a pretty kind of raw look at just kind of how self-absorbed and um ultimately lame these fucking cretins are um yeah uh i've seen some clips and shit like freakouts and stuff and all the shit they talk which is pretty fucking funny but like it's not like either of them had any sort of like moral or artistic high ground uh both these bands are fucking lame um i would just say listen to spaceman 3 listen to paisley underground listen to the Velvet Underground, you know, listen to, like, real fucking psychedelic shit, not just, like, stuff that, like, cherry picks, um, the kind of just shit that's retro, but also conveniently poppy, you know, from the 60s and 70s, so, um, yeah, I hate to be this guy, but I'm gonna give these fans a thumb down, give this, uh, movie a sideways thumb, because, I haven't seen it, but I'm sure it's fucking cool if it depicts these dudes out to be um, a bunch of posers, like I know them to be based on the fucking music I've subjected <laughs> myself to. Um, anyways, thank you for letting me talk at y'all. Um, thank you for listening to my thoughts on the matter, and keep up the great work, and keep chucking out, turning out those chuckles. Thanks, guys. Love everyone. Okay. Peace and love. Peace and love. The snark master himself graces us with his presence. Yeah. Thanks for weighing in. Yeah. He's kind of right. It, it does come off as like a copy of a copy of a copy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're like kind of totally lame or posers. I mean, homeboy's doing fucking heroin at his home studio on the on the uh, record label's dime. That's kind of admirable, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far, but yeah. it's rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, Heroin's rock and roll, bro. I could see them like having that conversation. It's rock and roll 101, like the, bro. Like the tambourine guy's like, oh, yeah, this is his. Uh, this is what the, the part where you do heroin. You're a rock star. <laughs> the tambourine guy. What's his name? Ian something or something. Joel. Oh, Joel. Joel. Yeah. Yeah. Full disclosure. I went to a wedding 
and that guy was there. Oh, did you did you talk to him? Minor interactions. We were like smoking a cig and a crowd of people. It was a really fun wedding. Uh, he's friends with my wife's friend. Wow. Small uh, world. And then he was a record dude, record store guy. Yeah. Here in Oakland. I used to see him. I think I totally, I wasn't trying to be a dick. I was checking out a record at the store he worked for, uh, one, two, three, four, go here in Oakland. Shout out. Great records were. And I think I said like, oh man, Danny Worlds. And he was like the other one. And I was like, oh fuck, shit. I wasn't <laughs> trying to, I wasn't Oof. trying to slag him. Right, right. It right. was an honest mistake. It truly was. I mean, come on. He had that has to happen all the still, fucking time. He still has the mutton chops. Fuck yeah, dude. <laughs> That's punk rock. <laughs> Got it. Probably all great now though. But yeah. uh, come for the tambourine, stay for the chops. <laughs> Um, yeah. um do you want to uh take a breaky and then we'll go into our current histories uh yeah or uh personal histories you mean personal histories sorry yeah let's do it all right all right now's part of the show here on whacker slaps presents twin cinema without the host caleb uh adrian what's your history with these bands slash this film. Yeah. So I don't really have <clears throat> too much history with these bands. I had heard their music just through, you know, the soundtracks or through friends or things like that, but I never really, you know, set out to, to listen to them. I do remember that I was a fan of like a couple of the songs um, like Anemone or Anemone and Nevertheless by Brian Johnson and Massacre. Um, not sure where I heard them, but I, I did, and I liked them. And then I did have the Goodwill Hunting soundtrack, which has the Danny Warhol's um, song Boys Better. Did you buy it just for the Elliot Smith? <laughs> no, I think I burned it off of um, one of our one of our pals. What if um, Will Smith slapped Elliot Smith at the Oscars that year <laughs> when he's wearing that white suit. <laughs> That's actually one of the best Oscar performances because it's just, it's just him. And then they bring in the, um, the choir or whatever. And it's just, it's really yeah. well done. So yeah, I had, you know, I had a little bit of, of uh, just that much experience, like with them basically hearing a handful of tracks here and there, but I did like, as I mentioned earlier, the, 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 BJM offshoot Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Yeah. Uh, I thought they were, um, you know, they're pretty cool. Um, as, a, as someone who loved the Velvet Underground and loves the Velvet Underground, I thought like, oh yeah, the same vibe kind of kind of going on. As for the film, I think that this was one of my early Netflix DVDs. You know, back when it was like you could you could get some rare stuff, uh, which you still can actually through the DVDs, but. You know, you can really find this at Blockbuster or whatever here uh, at the time. So I, um, back when Black, uh, Blockbuster still was holding on. But I, so yeah, I, it was one of the first few DVDs um, I watched from Netflix. It was, you know, uh, I liked it. I liked it. Um, it was around this time. Uh, I think it was around the similar time of, I think I mentioned on the last episode or a few episodes before, uh, the Wilco Daniel Johnston swap. Um, nice. so I was watching a lot of music docs getting, you know, deeper into the indie stuff. And, um, and so this was kind of had a lot of, um, I really liked it because it covered, it talks a lot about 
the music industry at the time and things that were going on. Well, right before that time, I suppose. But yeah, it was very interesting to see kind of the the machinations of these two bands. And <clears throat> obviously, I always love watching, you know, the bands getting the wild shit, you know, doing drugs and fighting each other is always super enter- entertaining. <laughs> uh, well, maybe not, not always, but uh, here it, it was very, uh, makes for a very interesting and entertaining watch. Um, and I also really like the DIY, DIY nature of this do- documentary compared to like the the devil and Daniel Johnson, for instance, where that one's a little bit, it's still very much indie quote unquote, but it's more polished. You know, there's more, yeah. uh, there's reenactments, there's, you know, these artistic kind of choices where there's, you know, different ways to tell the story. Whereas this one is kind of like, you know, there's interviews and all the standard documentary things, but it's also very raw and it's, you yeah. know, it's a lot of, you know, um, handheld camcorder footage. Yeah. You see it unfold more because it's yes. bands that are still forming, you know, the subject is still, you know, kind of, they're like in their nascent periods almost where. Right. We catch them kind of, what's the the term from, from like literature like in in medias in media rest yeah. yeah where you're kind of we're catching them right kind of in the middle of their thing here it's it's kind of a little bit early it's like early on they're kind of had built a little bit of success both these bands locally i think and had built a, a small audience but we're really just capturing them at the start of their kind of you know eventually their kind of eventual trajectory at this time uh, point in time so yeah, I, you know, it felt uh, I, it was actually really inspiring to watch like Anton Newcomb work on home recordings and writing songs and things. You know, I always was interested in that. We were always recording things, uh, you know, getting together and, and jamming and stuff. And that, <clears throat> so I, you know, I obviously watching this documentary, you know, I kind of uh, was inspired by that and it felt a kinship to that because, you know, that stuff's really fun and I can understand why they 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 pursued it so much and they made it their lives you know um yeah. so yeah it was a it was an inspiring viewing i love the i love the doc love uh, the bands <laughs> i was your favorite band i was indifferent about the bands i liked a handful of their songs and that's kind of where i was at for you know the past i don't know 20 years or whatever 15 yeah. years since the vit since i watched it this was your uh heat <laughs> where you're just like whoa war the dandies and bga or bjm in one movie it was like your pacino and de niro corny or uh, taylor taylor and newcomb <laughs> yeah together or well i guess they're pacino was in a movie before but they're not first time on not, screen yeah where they share a, a, a share a scene that <laughs> is the thing and which yeah. do we get? Uh, how many scenes do we have where they're actually where Anton and uh, Courtney Taylor, Taylor are actually talking? There's a few, but it that seems like they're true. Always, it seems uh, like they're always dodging each other. They're right? always dodging each other, or but like, they can't really like, stop talking about one another. Well, I think there's, there's also so kind of one sided, <laughs> yeah. well, at least from the from the sometimes the, though. But there's so many scenes where it's like they have an opportunity to just like shut down the the beef or yeah. But they're always like, yeah, those fucking guys. They think they're so cool, but you know they're great bands and they're they're our best friends. Like, <laughs> like they can't, right? They can't quit each other. Like, no, I, I guess mean, it speaks to that symbiosis, you know. Like, yeah, 
Taylor well, Taylor needs him needs Anton to be the the Batman some of Joker that juice. Kind of thing. yeah to get some of that authenticity rubbed off on him and then he needs to see them as some rising star that he can like <laughs> he attach needs to, drive to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of true yeah. for sure uh yeah strange that's yeah that's definitely Tox- true. it's what the kids would call a toxic situation <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a lot of um what is it emotional um <laughs> is this like one of the og frenemies i think i think it's like the big indie rock one frenemies right ones i think the og frenemy is betty davis joan crawford oh yeah the as as seen and uh what yeah. is that uh <laughs> the fucking show <laughs> feud feud god uh, behind uh, look, yeah behind so the, many so much content scenes, too much content. behind the scenes look at uh whatever happened to baby jane but uh but thinking about it like how many other beefs i mean obviously hip-hop beefs uh yeah, probably well, the main throwing most, aside hip-hop beefs yeah but, but like in rock terms and of roll like, kind of tough to say i mean elvis and uh robert goulet of course Infamously, <laughs> uh, um, you had Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Where that's uh, true. Vince Neil is like, Axel, put on your fucking boxing gloves. <laughs> We're gonna fight on, oh, on Headbanger man. Ball. When are we gonna do an episode on uh, on the dirt? That's uh, uh, the book. The my book. favorite book. <laughs> that's a great. Anyone out there who has not read. The Dirt, the Motley Crue uh, autobiography. You must read it this instant because it is just one of the most entertaining books. It's you can't put it down. A lot of wild stories, and uh, even if you fucking hate Motley Crue and their music, um, which is crazy because it's a fucking party. um, Yeah, it's it's very entertaining. Uh, Talking about you know rock and roll. I mean, that's kind of like you see. It's very similar to what we're seeing here in terms of like egos and excess. Yeah, but and, they were actually like rock stars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The they they may have been they may have started poor and shitty, but they eventually were millionaire rock stars. And, yeah. There's a woman in this uh what's that woman's name that she became a singer of her own right, but she was briefly in the Brian Jonestown massacre. Mm-hmm. Um can't remember her name. Oh, the she yeah. She was like the blonde haired woman singer. Yeah, God. Um, right, but she has a line where she's where she's like, Yeah, Anton's entered his like heroin, like reclusive rock star phase. She's like, But I think oh, yeah. you have to get you have to get famous before you do that. <laughs> like, you had you gotta get rich and famous before you do all the drugs and blow all your money. You can't, yeah, you can't do a reverse Brian Wilson. Like, that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't work. Yeah, all right. Well, do you have any more? no no that was it that was it you can uh yeah watch you jump in yeah so my histories um i knew before i knew of this documentary i didn't really listen to like the dandies or uh brian jonestown like in the 90s or even really the 2000s but i do remember reading about the dandy warhols because they had a bunch of hype a lot of press press hype magazine hype publicist they had to hire a publicist for this and uh i remember reading them my uncle used to always give me like rolling stones magazines i remember reading about them and thinking like oh these guys look pretty cool 
it seems like they're getting pushed a little too hard. Like you can always kind of you can sniff, sniff that out. Where you're yeah. like, okay, this is uh, this seems forced. Um, and then uh, yeah, they would even be in like yeah, Entertainment Weekly stuff like that. Right, but I never like, like the, the like the three sentence blurb like Dandy Warhol's releasing. Yeah, the where? next big thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Owen Gleiberman gives it uh, <laughs> B plus. Things to check out this spring. Yeah, and I remember that thirteen stories of Bohemia or whatever. Oh, th- uh, thirteen stories of New Bohemia or something. New Bohemia. Shit. That album seemed <clears throat> to be kind of hyped and like would get in mm-hmm. a lot of like some end of year list and stuff like that. The title is 13 tales from urban Bohemia. Bohemia. It's like 13 songs, like 85 minutes long. <laughs> Jesus. But, uh, the only time I ever like encountered a dandy Warhol's record, like in the wild, I was in high school and we were driving around smoking weed and my friend, she was driving. I was in the back seat. And on like the floor panel was that CD for the 13 stories about Bohemia. And I was like, oh yeah, I've read about this band. Are these guys like cool? Aren't they supposed to be cool? Like, you want to put, and she's like, oh, it's my boyfriend's like, I was like, I don't know. She's like, we can put it on and we put it on and it was just like, oh, this is like nothing. Like this, <laughs> this ain't it. Like this ain't cool. It, it, it's like so edgeless. Like edgeless. That's a good way to do. Yeah. To put it. Yeah. And um, it's slick. And that's about the level that they were at. They yeah. were a, a car floor. Friends boyfriend. CD friends boyfriend left that there. Like, do you want it? You can have it. You can take it. Actually, I'm trying to get rid of. It. I'm just gonna throw it away. Um. <laughs> And then as far as the uh, Brian Jonestown Massacre goes, I had never really heard them until I watched the documentary. And uh, the way I got my hands on the documentary, I had read about it in reviews. And, uh, you know, I was pretty into movies at the time. So I was like, oh, this is coming out of Sundance. Like I followed like the Sundance movies, you know, stuff like that. A lot of times that was what was really cool about like EW, like Entertainment Weekly, you know, in some ways they weren't as far removed from like a film comment or like, you know, a more deeper cinephilia yeah. or, or a deer, like a maximum rock and roll. They would pick up on like a lot of, they would cover a little bit of everything, which is always cool. I, I always love EW, have a soft spot in that. I think. It. They're underappreciated in the same way that like, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, magazines, periodicals, websites, you know, I think that there's under like EW is uh, underappreciated. I think, I think the people that knew, knew, um, similar, like all music guide to, um, where you're talking, we're talking about here where it's like, you know, reviewers who actually knew what the fuck they were talking about, knew their shit, but they're not really, you know, they're not in the spin. They're not in Rolling Stone. You know, they're not, it's a little bit less, uh, you know, uh, has a little bit less cachet in terms of that. And a lot but, of it was uh, more, less editorializing and just more information. Yeah. Just yes, like, exactly. here's what's coming out. Check this out. Like we're, we're excited for this. Right. And, or, or they'd have like a feel like a little bit with a band or something, a couple of questions. Yeah. 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 So I always appreciated it for that. But yeah, as far as Brian Jonestown, I never really listened to them. And then 
I got this this movie dig. I got it on a VHS <laughs> from they were doing, I believe, Hollywood video in on North Broadway in San Maria, California. Oh, yeah, Northtown. North they were doing a VHS clearance sale where yes. they were switching over to DVDs. So you I could go this. there. I used to hit up all the freaking video stores once they did this, once they transitioned. Yeah, you, you could buy uh, like Caleb as well. Yeah, you, we, yeah, you could buy that, yeah. they're like a dollar fifty for whatever VHS. And then, so they had a lot of new movies. So I bought this probably like in 2005. So yeah. it was only like a year old. Well, I mean, probably uh, the VHS was probably at this point fresh, right? At, yeah. In 2005. So yeah. Yeah. Brand new. So yeah. One of the last times that like new movies would get released on VHS. Although this one kind of makes sense. Music all, ones. Like, I think lasted on VHS for a little bit longer. Yeah. And when like more niche things for sure. Yeah. Like trade. Yeah. Like that tape trading era. Like um skateboard videos came yeah. out on VHS like up until like 2010. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's just not the same on a DVD, you know. Yeah. Something. And this movie makes perfect sense for VHS because it has that that already has the aura of it. Yeah. The, it has the academy ratio, the what is it? Oh, uh, four by three or whatever. Four by three, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it doesn't get fucked up like pan and scan, and it has that early '90s digital cinematography, just because the cameras they were using, like, mm-hmm. which now, when I used to watch movies when I was like a little punk, like teenager, I'd be like, "That's hideous! Like, that's not what a movie should look like. You should it's always not like cinema, bro. Got to shoot on film." But now I look at like 90s kind of blown out, like sun washed, you know, digital camcorder footage. And it has a charm to me. Yeah. In a way that a lot of like digital photography, cinematography these days has like an absolute dirge of charm. It's like trying to make a movie look hideous. Well, I think part of it is because <clears throat> even though it was digital, it was still going onto a tape, right? Or going onto like a mini tape, a, a physical medium. Yeah. Whereas now, true. everything projected is, on film or something. Yeah. Right. Well, because like I think she was probably using cam handy cams early on and then graduated to like the, the Canon <clears throat> kind of more advanced ones, but those were all still tape, right? Um, yeah. Digital tape, of course, but still a physical tape still physical medium whereas now everything is straight digital all the way through the chain and you can feel it you can feel how it's soulless in a way you know which isn't to say that like when you don't notice it then it's usually a pretty good movie good right or they've done their homework of like this is off yes and i think a lot of documentaries from the last 10 years have that feel where it's too clean almost or too it doesn't yeah. feel as real as this feels, even though like it's obviously much more crisp and uh, true to life in a way, uh, you know, in quotation marks. But it just doesn't have the same rawness that that the VHS has for this. But that's why, like as I was saying, uh, that it gives it that DIY feel, mm-hmm. whereas it's not. You won't get that now from. I mean, y- people are doing that now, obviously with because it's much more easy to get into it with digital but yeah it's it just lacks that sort of um that textural thing that 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 really makes it feel grounded in reality you know yeah 
the fe- yes that's what it, exactly what it is it's it's more recognizable where it's like yeah. oh i've seen home videos before there's a there's a comfort to that yeah our dumb lizard brains like i get yeah. this i understand this. yeah i understand this and then eventually as far as musically with these bands after i saw the documentary i definitely went to rush to my local library santa maria public library shout out shout sm out. smpl record club enamel pins up on our website as we speak yeah uh, grab them up go cop one adrian designed it they look really cool but i definitely checked out they had pretty much all their records there at the santa maria library i remember they had all of the dandies for sure all the dandies i think they had like probably four or five of the brian jonestown i definitely checked out brian jonestown first because i just thought they were more interesting Mm -hmm. and i got um i think the thank god for mental illness I got that one and then that one Majesty's psychedelic oh, service revisited yeah. or some bullshit. Which is like enough with the references, guys. Like, come on, take it easy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I forgot about it. <laughs> like it just doesn't stay in your head. Like it, it does not stick. No. Yeah, it didn't stick, but whatever. I liked them. And I think this movie was fair and presented them. Even as a young, you know, early 20 something, I saw, oh man, it kind of sucks to be in like a working band. Like it's a lot less glamorous than you think. Right. But I still respect all... it. It's like, well, at least they're still doing it. Even if they're playing to a crowd of five people, they're still trying to rock out and do that. That's true. So... They didn't, yeah, both these bands were as much as Trainwreck as Brian Jones sound was when they were going and it was good like they yeah both these bands could put on a show and definitely had the juice when it came to like that stuff but in terms of like keeping it together and moving yeah. on to the next step that's where things f- falls apart real quick mm-hmm. all right well should we i mean i think we basically talked about how we feel about it now but you yeah i mean see did anything spark was there something you know well Something you're like, oh shit, that's a blast from the past, something like that. Or I just have a, we can quickly go through like our uh, feelings now. And I'll, I'll just, I have a few notes about some stuff that, that uh, caught my eye on this go around because I watched it a couple of times here, um, which is funny that we're saying that things don't stick is because like the movie stuck and the scene stuck, but none of the oh, yeah. music, none of the music stuck in my head where I'm like, well, you know, I, I don't want to hear that again. But there's a lot of, like you're saying, duality in the film in terms of how, I mean, it's by design, obviously, because we're we're obviously, we're comparing these, you know, very directly comparing these two bands and their experiences. But like, you know, there's scenes with cops where the Danny Warhols <laughs> would have experience. We're like, oh, the cops, we got stopped, but, you know, they gave us our weed back and we we just have to pay a fine. They were Whereas, in France. In France, right? Whereas yeah. the Dandy War, or uh, the Brian Johnson massacre get caught stopped in the in the Deep South, <laughs> and they, <laughs> you know, they go off to jail. It ruins the tour. People get, you know, uh, Anton Newcomb gets upset at everyone. Else. It, Dude, it's a mess. Anton, rookie move. You think mm-hmm. he's like that? That that highlights his like megalo- megalomania, <laughs> where he's like, yeah, sir, of course, search my car. Search- I have nothing to hide. Yeah, dude, 
even don't if you think that dummy. you know you do some one of you has to have something that you forgot about yeah experience with labels also you could see where like they were both got you know jerked around in a way by major labels and things but the danny warhols you know they they got a lot more support i think and they blew it well they both got support but they blew it in different ways whereas the dandy yeah. warhols were kind of like it's never good enough the brian johnson massacre just imploded like anton Yukon just imploded he's like I, yeah. I couldn't i can't handle this whatever these pressures are now from you know actually having to do something whereas before i could just put it out and do it and it was easy because it wasn't connected to anything and now i have a contract and all this shit and then as what we... you wish for my friend the, <laughs> the monkey's paw <laughs> and then experience with like photo shoots in the movie whereas like we talked about the video shoot with david la chapelle um there's the photo shoot where the dandy warhols kind of borrow some of the grittiness from brian jones and masker by that going scene, to film there adrian uh, might apartment. be the whole crux of the film right where they That's go like to the do the shoot of there. the movie yeah you want to set up that scene for us and we'll talk about it so so basically what happened was the danny warhols were asked to do a, a photo shoot i believe i forget what magazine it was for it i think it was like it may have been rolling stone or spin a big one and they're like hey wouldn't it be fun and cool if we went to our friends, the Brian Johnson Masters on New Year's apartment, Day. On New Year's Day, they're kind of run down, shitty, shithole rock and roll apartment and took photos there for our photo shoot. Like, wouldn't that be great? And so they go and they kind of invade their their home and yeah. take over. And the Brian um, Jonestown guys are like just waking up. Yeah, you clearly like from tambourine, a, like Joel, the tambourine guy's like, "What the fuck?" Oh, like, you literally see him waking up. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, "You guys couldn't have your own fucking party to take pictures at." Like, <laughs> are you in a rock band? Like, what's going on? Yeah, and so and so they yeah they they're 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 you know they get shot by this photographer and it's like you know it's them and kind of they're clean and cleaned up you know stolen and valor stolen exactly because they're borrowing all this grit from these other guys and like but that's not them like that's their yeah. that's you know and then the, you see they're the, not uh, those cigarettes and that, those beer cans aren't theirs it's i know it, yeah. and it's kind of like they're their vibe though where they're kind of cheeky where they're like <laughs> isn't it cool that we're acting like we're rock stars but yeah, they're we're trying to be over tongue it. In cheek. We're kind yeah. of over it, like partying all night. <laughs> That's whatever. <laughs> right. Like, it's like that detached 90s kind of that postmodern persona that people would have. Yeah, mm -hmm. we're too cool to be cool. With the ironic lame. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh, like the Matt Hollywood guy was like, well, fuck, I guess we can't have a photo shoot at our own house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then they have a, the Byron Joseph Masker has a, a photo shoot. I think at this point it's mainly just Anton. Yeah. Um, he's, he's holding it together. By he's holding it together. Winging he's, a prayer. Yeah. But he's like basically has to scam it to get it together. Like he has to scam up some money. I think he gets what like two hundred bucks or something from from yeah. a friend. Um, he calls up a bunch of pals. Uh, you know, and it, again, it's the DIY spirit of like, let's just call a bunch of people. Let's go to the park or whatever. Let's go to this lot and just fucking bring some some random shit and have a photo shoot. And it's much more like, 
I don't know, true to them and true to like what it, what they actually are about versus what the Danny Warhols were is like, okay, you're just using, you know, funny money to fucking play at being a rock star. Like these guys are actually doing rock star shit, trying to put it together on a fucking no money and he pulling it he off. Pawns, he pawns his guitar. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's where it starts. Right. He says he, he um, he's talking to, uh, I think it's the director of the movie. Um, or maybe someone else. Uh, and he's, he says, yeah, this first, first we got to go pawn my guitar and then we're going to call these people. And then we're going to go have a photo shoot. <laughs> and you think like, oh, okay, buddy, like, all right, you're, you're just going to go and buy drugs and whatever, but he pulls it off. And it's like, you can see the difference between the two, whereas like the dandies is all polished and, you know, perfect and uh, perfect in the sense of like, it's a magazine shoe and everything. And it, it goes, you know about as well as it can whereas this is kind of like a clusterfuck and a mess and it's messy and raw but it captures the spirit of who they are and yeah, what they're doing you know yeah it truly does and you can um, you can um, extrapolate that i just a couple more duality things. oh yeah yeah go ahead yeah um, that's what it's all about the the juxtaposition of these two well before did you did you have something to chime in with uh, before i jump no go ahead go ahead keep it going this is good Cool. So the idea of selling out versus staying indie, uh, yeah. which you know kind of hangs over both these bands. I think obviously they both want to sign to a major label to get more exposure, but yeah. then all at the same time. And that was the feasting time of major labels. It's yes. still it's Post still the wake of Nirvana, even up until like 1999, you know, like where it's like we can still and you know, Adrian, that might be why these two bands married themselves so closely it's because they were trying to create some sort of scene that would get mm. raided by you know the rising tide raises all ships kind of their like, ver- version of seattle or yeah, los angeles if we can or, make this seem like a thing yeah then we got a we got a chance right and i and more power to them that's I don't think that's even a cynical thing. Like I think no, no, no. If you want to be in a band, it helps if you have like your brother and sister band. You know that type of stuff. That's how bands stay. That's how you fill out a bill. That's how you make a show. So yeah, yeah, we're supporting each other and building each other up for sure. Um, so yeah, there's that idea, you know, and obviously they both eventually sign to majors, and we see how that all unfolds and how it ultimately it doesn't work out and you know, in the, in the ways that they want it to. Um, and part of that is because, you know, for, for Anton Newcomb, I think he imploded, but I think also these guys, they need the freedom to do what they would do. And this, their deal happened to let them do that. I think the Dandy Warhols were a little bit more hemmed in by their deal, but yeah. still managed to do what they wanted to do a little bit, but they still played it safe. Yeah. And I think that that kind of ruin them in a way or like kind of hurt them well they Um, realize very quickly that the record label gives you a very slim window to blow up and if you don't you're on the the heap of just oh shit we gotta (laughs) contractually obligated to produce two more of your albums but like we're not good luck you got to make it on your own right which in a way i think they kind of do because they cultivate their like european fan base and they right, still well, make that, a go of it. That's that's an interesting thing too. Is where they 
I mean, that's kind of another indie cliche, indie rock cliche, right? Like go to Europe to go get big in Europe first. Yeah. I think Sonic Youth did that. Nirvana did that. A bunch yeah. of other. Ryan Jonestown is literally big in Japan. Right. Exactly. That's that's a funny thing too. Although I think the Japanese do have an affinity for psychedelic rock, and they, they psychedelic do. and like a kind of a like a the put on of like a messiah kind of yeah larger than life band leader in a way exactly like, yeah like the whole theater of it i think yeah it does play in japan totally so yeah the idea of like success versus credibility and are these things mutually exclusive like can you be can you maintain your artistic authenticity and be successful can you can you have can you be careerist and still be trusted to, and have credibility? Like these are all these things that are, that are mixed up and around in this movie that are interesting. Cause I think you can, I think it's a tough, you know, it's, it's a tough path to, to, to really make it and, and succeed. Um, and we see how these guys both failed in their, in their attempts, but you know, yeah. can you trust yourself once you become famous? I mean, yeah. I've seen that have that story play out many times times yeah. where somebody's like oh shit i'm writing this music from my heart but now i'm rich and famous so like what does it mean like uh it's how my, you deal with this my, my superpower of writing songs as a way to cope with life is now taken away from me am i a phony just like everybody else right right because it's like either you you evolve and you grow right or, or you stay in one place and that's kind of the equivalent of self-sabotage where, I mean, maybe it works and you sell records, but it's not really, I mean, what is that? That's not really a career. Yeah. That's just kind of like being like a nostalgia actor, like a, like a tribute act or something, right? Like you're not really yeah, doing what it is, means to be an artist. What am I in the business of? Right. Why do I care? It's but it's why just, am I even thinking about business? Like, right. know, like, yeah, it's just, it doesn't seem, you know, I mean, it's, and it's only gotten worse, the music industry, but it's, it's some yeah. of the numbers that they're pointing out there, like the, um, the nine out of 10 records fail stat where it's basically nine out of 10 records at these. And this is in the nineties, you know, mind you late nineties, yeah. nine out of 10 records were, were failing. Yeah. Completely failing. And the one successful record, it paid for the rest of the nine records. And these and, are two bands that were the other nine. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't do, they weren't able to do the one to pull it yeah. off. And that's, and that's kind of why they've been relegated to sort of, which the I don't know if we have another documentary like this. Not one that covers this all in the same way. It reminds me kind of like hoop dreams where yeah, here you it, follow these two, high school basketball stars right and one is like a the, a blue chip recruit coming out of like chicago and one is kind of like a kid that it's like maybe he'll have a chance to go to college but probably not the nba but yeah, they both shot, yeah. kind of you know they're very good at basketball but that's just it's a numbers game it takes a lot of things have to go right to be successful like the whole industry needs talent and a lot of that talent just grinds up till you see which talent kind of rises to the top yeah and a lot of that is just by mere luck or mere you know circumstance you know right 
I mean, uh, you know, what's the, there's the saying about luck is just, what is it like? Luck is just preparation opportunity. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that's definitely true. And, um, and this, this movie is kind of like is... if it wasn't for bad luck, I want to have any luck at all. <laughs> Shout out to uh, to my favorite, Eric Clapton. But they also never stop and smell the roses. No, that's true. That's, that's a folly of youth. <laughs> we have to remember they're young, you know, in these documentaries. That's true. I yes, and it's certainly all of the things, the way that they're acting, the way that they perceive themselves. It's very much a young man's perception yeah of uh more like young man yells at cloud (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yeah whereas like if we were seeing this and these guys were 10 years older you would get completely different vibe like it would be completely different disgusting (laughs) it would be very way way sadder but seeing how young they are how hungry they are for like you kind of it makes sense and it's like yeah. yeah, you 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 get the whole picture of who these guys are and who they you know, yeah, w- what the what the uh, what this path is and what it means to be a, yeah. an artist and an, an indie rock you know an indie rocker. Mm-hmm. I don't. It is kind of sad to see Anton because I don't think he grew at all by the end of this documentary. No, not really. He's still bitter and violent. And a lot of it, I think he clearly has some mental health stuff because there's that interview with his dad who's like a diagnosed schizophrenic alcoholic who takes his own life. Yeah. And at the end of this documentary, you see Anton saying like, I'm fucking so influential. You hear what's on the radio? You hear you hear freaking white stripes? You know, that's me. That's me. And it's like, no, it's not, dude. Yeah, well, first of all, they were those guys were out there at the same time you were doing your shit. So, uh, there's a part where Courtney Taylor, Taylor says in an interview, he's like, yeah, Brian Jonestown massacre. They're like the velvet underground of the nineties. And it's like velvet underground, at least sold a thousand records to start influential. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think you guys, I don't know. I don't think that quite works. Right. I mean, maybe in terms of like, I think actually I would say that this this documentary is more influential than either of these bands in terms of like yeah that is inspiring music and inspiring indie indie music yeah. yeah this this is the legacy you're right this is the legacy that they've yeah. they were able to you know the movie is bigger than the band like, yes if you wrote this band's obituary it'll be the band that was featured in the movie dig that documented the beef between brian jonestown and danny warhols yeah i mean that's kind of got to suck though right if you're in one of these bands is like yeah but they're always still, connected i mean like at least saying, it keeps you have some dude. some sort of cachet yeah true true yes but um, it's it's, right. it's got to be a double-edged thing for sure let's yeah. do some whack or slaps let's get into do you want to highlight like a song or anything adrian or I have, yeah. I I was able to get a pretty good list of stuff, actually. Nice. And frankly, I don't really remember these songs. I have the names here, but I'm like, what does that sound like? I, I do have one that I do want to play. It's one that one of the first songs I heard from either one of these bands. 
and I think it still holds up pretty well. It's an enemy by Brian Jones and Massacre. Nice. Um, it's just, it hits all of their vibe, you know, the, the, the folky aspect of it, the Americana aspect of it, the velvet underground noisy aspect of it. It's kind of a template for a lot of their, for their sound, you know, and it's just an enjoyable, enjoyable tune, just a, just an enjoyable rock tune. But I don't know. Yeah. You have anything to add before I, uh, play yeah. a little bit here? Let's hit it. All right. Here is a little bit from Anemone by the Brian Jonestown Massacre. And it sounds like in excess. Like, bad. yeah, it's not bad. Like, picture you're driving along, windows open, you got a cig, you're smoking, you know, it's blasting loud. Yeah, yeah, maybe you're hitting the joint. Like, yeah, that that shit would hit real hard. Um, I can just keep going with the slapper from the BJM. Yeah, the song. I think it's Ballad of Jim Jones. Oh yeah, yeah. I think that kind of there's a little tenderness to that song. Which is always yeah. weird to me when I listen to the BJM. They they are more subdued than you think they would be just judging them from the judging their attitude from yeah. this movie. Yes, exactly. It's more it's much more contained. You would think like that this would be the sounding more like yeah, like like a flaming lips or something, you know, where it's a little bit more out there, a little bit more yeah. weird and wild. But ultimately, like these songs are just well-crafted rock songs that they're they're a little noisy they're a little weird but ultimately they're they're really kind of self-contained little pieces of uh pieces of work and yeah this is a good example of that for sure should we hear a little bit of it yeah from the tippy maybe i don't know all right this is one of the few songs that you actually like hear the whole thing in the documentary which i found odd like oh yeah it's all little snippets. Like you rarely hear like a full song in this thing. It's that classic nineties MTV short attention span. <laughs> all right, here we go. Here is Ballad of Jim Jones by mm. the Brian Jensen Massacre. Yeah. Movies that rock on VH1. <laughs> one, two, three, one, two, three. Yeah, let's drink. This has a little Titus Andronicus vibe. Oh, totally. Once by the Bay, shout out San Francisco. That's the one song that I think I like, but it's kind of one of those bands where it's like, yeah, I only need the one. (laughs) I totally, I'll I'll put that on a playlist. That's it. I only need the one. (laughs) Just the one. Yeah. Yeah. I get the gist. That's a legit (laughs) good song. I I like that song. It is a good song. 
then like again they it's not like they have bad songs or anything it's not like they're real crap they just it's have just songs. they just yeah it's just songs and it's just like it's just fine it's just okay do you have a a slapper by <laughs> the dandies the dandies i have a few i mean you know we could uh, Bohemian like you obviously is the hit that we talked about. Yeah, you know, there's yeah. there's some songs Nobody like remembers it. It's it's a f- song aphasia. <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> topical. Uh, and there's stuff like Cool as Kim Deal, which I f- forgot about and remembered like three times. Kim Deal's in this, this, right? Well, that's interesting because I think I think it's I think they call her Kim Deal, but I believe she says something like, I was just talking to Kim oh, about this. So I think it's actually Kelly Deal. You know, they're twin. they're twins. Yeah. But anyways, that, you know, I like that song. But ultimately, I think the one song is the one that started it all off for me is Boys Better from uh, from the soundtrack. It's just, it's nice. it does really encapsulate their sound. It is catchy. It is hooky. It, it's fine. It's just fine. It's just a pleasant little little bop, and uh, I think that that's about all you could ask from them, you know. So unless you have any more thoughts on it, let me uh, I'll play it. Yeah, I have no idea what song you're talking about. <laughs> I wouldn't think you would. So, anyways, here is "Boys Better" <laughs> by the Dandy Warhols. see it yeah not bad they could almost fit in it's weird that they didn't have a bigger hit like they almost are like almost foo fighters almost third eye blind like why weren't they a one-hit wonder i don't i really it yeah i'm surprised that they didn't i mean uh, i guess bohemian like you it has like 125 million plays on spotify but they but it just it never really not Um, even like not even like a breeders or something who have like you know had a big one one big huge hit it's like a yeah it's a cell phone song (laughs) yeah they're a cell phone band let's let's face it um let's get into wax something maybe some songs we didn't like but uh i gotta take a little break i'll be right back all right so we heard some wax or some slaps uh, let's get into some wax. And I have a song by the Dandy Warhols oh that is like one of their singles. We saw them make a m- music video for it. It's called Not If You Were the Last Junkie on Earth. <laughs> yeah. I think this is one of the worst major label singles ever put out there. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Ever? I don't know. It's just like, it's just such a non song. And I will say though, one of my favorite parts in the movie was when uh, Courtney Taylor plays this song for Anton. Oh, he he's plays like, it. Doesn't he play for Anton and Joel? And Joel, yeah. He's like, check out this freaking heroin song I wrote. And they're like, again with your like little fake junkie <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Okay. Let's hear it. And I, I will say the song is trying to be very tongue in cheek. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, intentionally. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like, dude, glam rock is like already 20 years old by the time you're trying to do it. 30 years old, practically. 30 years point, old yeah. by the time you're trying to do it. Like we've, we've, we've been through this. Like <laughs> just, it, I just think it's such a bad song. I don't know why it like annoys me. <laughs> What do you think about this song? Not if you're the last junkie on earth by the Dandy Warhol. I mean, you know, it's, it does not leave an impression. It does not make any sort <laughs> of like memorable, like there's, it's, which is weird because when you're listening, you're like, okay, there's, there's hooks here. Like the vocals sound good. Like it's 90s okay. irony song. Right. But lyrics. then then you think about it and you listen and you like you think about listen like it's just not it's not good. It's not a very good song yeah. ultimately. And like I probably would react the same way that they react in the movie, which is to say they don't react at all. He's <laughs> They're so, just kind of like, okay, uh that was a song. All right. He's so dejected by he's like, dude, he's very him, dejected. I yeah. played him my my new hit, soon to be hit song, and he just totally it didn't even register for him. And then of course, Anton has the clap back song, which of course, uh, not if you were the last Danny, and... Danny, uh, which is a better song, but also kind of dumb, but well, I, for me, like I would just spoiler. No, I don't have any, any wax because I wrote here, let's face it. Most of these sound exactly the same. Yeah. <laughs> so whack slap, it's all the same for the you know these guys. Do you all right, play but a snippet of that. Yeah, so let's uh, let's hear move on a little bit of not if you were the last junkie on earth. This was also the height of like heroin chic, that whole nineties. Oh kind yeah, of the kind of reemergence of yeah, yeah. Uh, train spotting came out this year too, right? Ninety six, probably. Yeah, right around there. Yeah. All right, so here is Not If You Were the Last Junkie on Earth by the Dandy Warhols. That is, that's insufferable. <laughs> uh, uh, I, it, it's not good at all, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far. As but that. what makes it insufferable is because it's trying to not be good. It's trying to be, oh, it's a toss off. It's a toss away. Anytime you're trying to intentionally sound breezy, intentionally sound tossed off, intentionally sound like, easy going it just it's the worst shit because it just sounds so fake yeah. when you're trying to sound like a podcast and like this song like <laughs> if i if i was gonna <laughs> yeah this song like if i was gonna listen to this like why wouldn't i just put on space hog or any other number of bands that were doing this exact shit way better yeah. like uh yeah it's stereo Sup Land, uh, uh, what, super grass well, you something. know super oh yeah super grass <laughs> oh my god adrian yeah that's the band they wanted to be. They wanted to be the American Supergrass, <laughs> which is like okay, fine, but like you gotta have good songs. Like they have you gotta good lean songs. into it more. 
be more of a Beatles ripoff. Be more of a. You can't be above what you're referencing. Like, yeah. isn't this cute? We're doing like a little '60s chorus thing. We're like a lazy Beatles. It's like, okay, uh, we already have the Beatles, like the real ones. Like, why? <laughs> why would I want a sanitized, you know, yeah. half-ass version of that? Like, that doesn't sound good at all. What the that fuck? Sounds dumb. <laughs> oh boy, yeah. Shitty Beatles. That sounds dumb. That could really sum up a lot of that band. <laughs> that was the alternate title of this documentary. <laughs> that sounds dumb. Oh boy. All right. That was my fanzine <laughs> in 1999. It's called That Sounds Dumb. <laughs> All right. What do you want to do next, Adrian? Do you have a whacker? Or... No, as I said, these all sound oh, the yeah, same. They so. all sound the same. Okay. Uh, I think we're on to ratings now, yeah? Oh, shit. Yeah, let's do it. You know, as a documentary... I got to say, it really does stand the test of time. It really is like a cultural document. It really does capture like what the record, without trying to go too in, in depth of what like the record industry was like back then. You know, it's not like investigative, but it, it, it's just enough like fly on the wall to show you the machinations of like what it takes to be a band and how it's a document of how most bands don't achieve insane fame you know they just don't like but no. the fact that we have this documentary that lived with them for so long it's really refreshing because i think you now you only see documentaries that are about like the great ones that made it and it, it feels kind of by the numbers but this this documentary if you if you if you never really heard of the bands and you watch it as like a story like oh are they going to make it or are they aren't it's really kind of captivating because you see these two bands that like, yeah, like they're so uncomfortable with their identity and they, you know, they're not established. So they're kind of, maybe they're kind of like performing for the camera. Like maybe this documentary will blow us up, you know? So it's, I, I just find it very interesting and it's, it's weirdly a movie I've seen like 10 fucking times. Cause like I've had it on VHS yeah, yeah. Pre, pre-internet if you had it you watched it a bunch of times so right. i give it a 10 man like i Ooh. really liked it i like the cinematography like it all it really captured kind of a moment but like a footnote of a moment it's like a sub scene of a scene of a scene you know it's like yeah 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 it's not but- like important bands per se which is not to say like the bands are terrible i think whatever it's admirable to be in a, a, to be a musician. It's a hard life and they, yeah. they still did it, you know? I but agree. I just think, yeah, I just really, I think it's good filmmaking and it, it is a document of the time that will stand the test of time. I agree. I think, I think you're spot on. I think, I think the reason it works is because these are two interesting bands you know, whether or not the music is interesting or good, that, that that really doesn't really matter because the story is so good and the personalities are so interesting that the mute, the film is, is good. Even if you hate these, this music or whatever, like it's still worth a watch if you don't 
if you don't like yeah. rock and roll music or whatever, just because of the story of the, the human story behind it, of ambition, of creativity, of uh, yeah, self-sabotage, of all of these things that we've been talking about. And yeah, and I think also the texture of it, everything, it, it feels like a time capsule from a time, but it doesn't feel dated, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, it, it's like of the moment, but it's not, it, it's not like, it's not like a, a nostalgia trip or something either. It's yeah. like, you know, it, it is what it is. And it's, it, it, goes... it, it provides the right amount of context to, to really make it satisfying yeah. piece of uh, a piece of art in its own right. Aside you know from what, the bands. You know what yeah, gives it a lot of permanence, Adrian? It's in that sweet spot where it was filmed before the internet really exploded. And it was released right as the internet was exploding. So you could mm. hear about the documentary, you know, via the internet or whatever. Right. But it shows that here were these two bands. They still had to like show up. They still had to get a tour together by like old methods of you know, promotion, like you see these, you know, I think if you made, if you made a similar documentary now, you would just see two bands jawing at each other via Instagram or the <laughs> internet or via Twitter, you know, it, yeah. it's not, there's less face to face. Like you see them, you see so many situations in this documentary where these people don't have cell phones and stuff. It's like, Oh, I don't know where he went. He walked off or they're like, rumor has it like Anton's driving up to Portland. He's going to come live with us. You know, yeah. last gasp of kind of, you know, where these people, these two bands, they couldn't brand themselves on their own with the internet. They needed this documentary. They needed these labels to like kind of, put themselves out there you know so it's create their narrative yeah. yeah create the narrative yeah that's right i think that's that's completely yeah. accurate um, days before like online kind of brand <laughs> management and connectivity i think it's one of the last documents of that kind of in a weird way i would say that's true and it's interesting to think like if they had come about say two two years later yeah. Would things have been different for either of them? You know, I think you're right. I think this is so specific to this one particular moment in time, but at the same time, like there's a lot of universal themes here at work. That's why, that's why it works as a movie. And I think that's why it yeah. feels eternal is because there's always going to be, you're always going to be, people are always going to struggle with these questions of, you know, authenticity versus success and all this stuff that we, you know, yeah. that are covered so aptly in this movie. So yeah, I guess, you know what? I think you've talked me into a 10. I think I have to give it a 10 as well. I was going to go with like a nine, maybe a 9.5, but you know, yeah. you're right. Is it a perfect 10? I think, I think the way it aged, it is kind of. I think for yeah. what it is and what it yeah. set out to do, it is a perfect 10. I think maybe just because we've had such a glut of musical documentaries that this one seems at least a little fresh. Yeah compared to what we get these days and like it's all the ones that we see these days kind of all feel the same and this They're one inspirational yeah now right. right where it's like look at it you oh, don't get to see you didn't even, like you knew they were influential but you didn't realize how influential <laughs> it's like look how, like you it's all seen the surface level greatness now let's right. get into the the nitty-gritty greatness but this man is like Okay, this is how most of it is. This is like a the struggle of 
the and the yeah the self sabotage. Well, because most bands nowadays would not allow themselves to be seen exactly. that way. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's all so curated now um, yeah. that when we see things that are like this, where you see the both the good and the bad, like it really makes for a satisfying and full experience of what who these guys are and that and their their band and their lives. Whereas something now, you know, it, it generally that you do not see the bad. Even something like the LCD movie, like that's more sanitized, right? There's there's got to have been some some negative aspects to whatever happened, but we don't see that, right? It's all sort of curated by curated. James Murphy and yeah. James Murphy, and it's like well, it's a celebration, know, right? Like- I mean, it's obviously it's 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 a movie that says how to do different things, but I think it could have been more interesting to see some struggles, to see some, you know, he talks about it for sure. In, in his interview with Klosterman in that movie. But I think like, like this movie succeeds so well because you see just how far gone Anton gets and you get to see how, how desperate he gets and how desperate the bands get. And, uh, and that's why it's, yeah, I think that's why it's timeless and it works so well still yeah. even, yeah, even I've seen this maybe four or five times myself. And yeah, I think I would, yeah, I would oddly still watch it rewatchable. Yeah, it is. All right, so we give it a 10. So that, that gives it a perfect 10. Wow. Um, let's see. Whatever happened to this band? They're still going. And, you know, both of probably, them. Yeah. Probably because this documentary kind of gave them a little bit of a, a boost, even though it makes them seem kind of fallible, vulnerable, not that cool, you know? I think that's kind of works, though, for them. I think it makes them feel more yeah. real. And I think that that's probably what their fans would be looking for. Yeah, that's true. Although, have you ever met a, <laughs> a fan of either of these bands? A direct fan, someone that's like has I either of like these them? bands ever come up in conversation <laughs> organically, <laughs> aside from the movie? Yeah, I don't think so. No, I think mm. every time I've ever talked about either of these bands, it's been in the context of this movie, <laughs> or or it's like, well, so, okay, so similarly to you, I have a friend who worked she used to live in San Francisco and she worked at a uh, now defunct clothing store that was right next to a recording studio or a record shop that I, I believe was one of Anton's friends owned it. So he would uh-huh. be over there all the time. And, and so she, she got to know him a bit. He would just be like pushing this on you. Like you gotta <laughs> check out. Um, she said he was, you know, he was nice and whatever an interesting guy, but yeah. But yeah, they're they're still they're still going, they're still around. I don't I don't think that there's many original members of the Brian Jonestown yeah. Massacre still involved, but I think that for the most part, the dandies have kept to most of the people that were in this stock, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. All right. Personal anecdotes. You know, Adrian, I actually remembered I did see Brian Jonestown live, live for like a minute. I think it was like Coachella, like 2004. Hmm. They're playing in like a tent. And it was like, oh, this is the band from that movie. <laughs> I think I saw them for like, oh, no, no, it wasn't 2004. I've actually been to Coachella twice, which is like, why did I do that? But- I think I saw them. It was like 2010. And I was like, oh, oh this is that movie from that band. And Good I band was, from the movie. Yeah. And I... I watched like maybe three or four of their songs in like a sweaty ass tent. 
That sounds about, yeah, that sounds about par for the yeah. course. Fool me once, shame on <laughs> you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Why did, yeah, Coachella is not a fun place. Don't ever go there. No, no. I'm with Kanye in this one. Just yeah. uh, forget about Coachella. Yeah. Yeah. I think I saw, I went there because the Cure was playing and they weren't playing anywhere else that I could see them that year. And I just, it was like a bucket list band. So that's why I went, but hmm. Well, didn't Anyways. you see? You caught Radiohead too. What the? That was back in 04. That was the radio. Oh, right. Okay, Pixies. okay. Radiohead Pixies. Yeah. Whatever. It was so hot. I was <laughs> fried out of my mind. But, uh, yeah. okay. We're done, right? Let's do the. I think that'll do it. Yeah. Let's do the outro. God damn it. We got to set up next week's episode, Adrian. What are we doing? We're pivoting again. <laughs> yeah, so we're spinning off into a, yet again into another little subsection here of our the podcast. Of our slap-a-verse. <laughs> yeah, the extended slap-a-verse. We are going to move on to what we're going to call our greatest slaps series. So... Nice. Basically, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at some of the greatest, greatest hits from uh, from the past, you know, uh, whatever, recorded uh, history, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, we're going to look at if you look at like the top 10 selling album of all, of all time, most of yeah. them are like greatest hits. So we're going to look at like just those ubiquitous greatest fucking hits, like those CDs you saw on your dad's shelf. <laughs> yeah. Right. The records that, you know, that yeah, feel the like library at the thrift store, right. In your uncle's van or whatever, like every single, <laughs> every single, everyone had them. Uh, they were everywhere. And there's a bunch like 30 million copies sold for whatever fucking reason. Platinum. Yeah. Platinums. All right. What's so, the first one we're doing, Adrian? So to start it off, the mother uh, of all of them, the mother of all all greatest hits albums it is the eagles greatest hits album their their first greatest hits album i should clarify uh eagles i believe is called their hits 1971 through 1974 let me make sure on that it's one the blue album you know what it is you know what blue it is album with like the skull skull and it's, uh, it's just eagles right drop the the it's oh cleaner. yes you're right <laughs> it is just eagles you're right um, which shows you how much I give a shit about this band. But uh, so it's Eagles and it's their greatest hits, 1971 through 1975. Whoa. And uh, spoiler alert, I've already listened to this and I have a lot of thoughts. A you lot of converted, thoughts. Converted, folks. <laughs> I may have Eagles pilled myself, guys. You might and gals his, out there. Yeah. He might lose his uh, cool card. <laughs> No, yeah. that's gonna be fun, Adrian. I can't wait to do that. It's gonna be interesting to say the least. Yeah. Uh, and I also can't wait to hear what Caleb's thoughts. <laughs> yeah, we'll get Caleb back maybe someday soon. This concludes our twin cinema episodes. Yeah, we'll do some greatest hits ones, and then eventually we'll get back to the core podcast. And you know, we'll release these a couple episodes a month. You know, we're uh, keeping it cash here. Keeping it casual, uh, while our um, yeah. while our leaders off in Babyville. <clears throat> yeah, we'll figure it out. But um, all right. So yeah, go listen to the Eagles. 
greatest hits. Their greatest hits. All right, here we go. Let's do the outro. Adrian, what do you say? Let's do it. Thank you to Kiki Ontiveros for the most slapping of theme songs. Thank you, Adrian, for all your stellar production work. Check out our website, wackerslaps.com. Make sure to follow us on the socials at wackerslaps. Talk some shit via email at wackerslaps.com. Uh, rate, follow, subscribe, do all that stuff for us. For I am Noah, and this has been Wacker Slaps. And as always, whatever happened to Baby Jane? Bye. <laughs>